Hello and welcome to the turn of the season in the Highlands of Scotland. This is the podcast of the Roy Dennis Wildlife Foundation, working towards the restoration of species at home and abroad. Migration is visibly in action here near our house, as we stand on the edge of Fintorn Bay with tens of thousands of pink-footed geese pouring overhead. The kind of peace and quiet of the summer for the ospreys is suddenly shattered by these <laughs> thousands of geese milling everywhere, and so the osprey must think then. Well, it's time to get off to Africa. <laughs> You're saying the ospreys are driven out by the noise? Near enough, near <laughs> enough. While out on the salt marsh, a handful of ospreys, the last to set off, are just days away from leaving for long and dangerous journeys to their wintering grounds. We'll be hearing the detail via data from their satellite tags on how two of them, Carr and Desha, are getting on. You only have to look at some of the places on Google Earth to realise that these are just some of the most remote, inhospitable parts of the planet. Actually, one of the biggest dangers is, is where to find a safe roof spot for the night. And when they get to the end of those journeys, if they do, the dangers will be far from over. Because Africa is different. People think uh, birds with wings could be a witchcraft. Sometimes it's very dangerous for them at an environment that they don't know. And then people don't know the ospreys. We'll be hearing how to engage communities in support of wildlife conservation. Wow, big surprise. Three. There are three. Oh, wow. It's really personal, isn't it? It is. Yes, <laughs> yes. Our nest has got three. Yes. But we start back on Fintorn Bay, looking out for those last few ospreys of the year, still feeding up for their long migration. This is the sound of the end of the summer. This is absolutely beautiful with the noise of the uh, geese. And there's one osprey there, perched on the old raft that we put out in the hope of uh, attracting terns. There's trees get washed down the river and they stick in the mud flats and they make all oh, this a second on a very nice perch there and scanning round. There's actually five ospreys here today and those are male ospreys and they're the very last ones to go. They, they will have been feeding late young ones and so they catch the fish here, uh, principally flatfish, and they fly inland to the nest which can be up to 10 miles away and the young ones stay at the nest and then when they're ready off they go and then the males have another few days of feeding up by themselves and look at they're all over our head now look at that isn't that beautiful with all the schemes kind of all those great big v's in the sky you know why they're in v's because each bird is getting a benefit from the one in front and so they kind of go in a v like that that's, like a peloton of cycles yeah that's beautiful Two of the young ospreys who left for Africa long before the geese arrived are already well on their way and are being followed online. Roy fitted them with satellite tags in the summer and they're being tracked by the children of two primary schools in the area who have a very close connection with the birds and the local estate. Alistair, would you be a volunteer to carry a section of ladder? That is quite light. I'll take one if you take one, that would be great. In July, I went down to a nest near Carr Bridge, 
Um, and the keeper is really interested in conservation and his estate encourages him. And so this year, one osprey called Carr is being followed by the Carbridge School. And another osprey called Desher is followed by the Botergarten School because both of those schools will have children from them that live on Strasbay Estates. It's their nest. My name is Frank Law. I'm a retired headkeeper on the estate and I used to live just down the road here where I could keep an eye on this. And we first saw the ospreys hanging about this area in the late 70s. But this tree, they picked this tree, but the branches at the top weren't perfect for a nest. So Roy and I climbed up and built a platform that we put branches in and they took to it straight away. And they've basically been nesting in this area since the early 80s. So that must have been quite early days for building platforms. People weren't yeah. really doing well, that. Well, I don't, I don't know if anyone had built a platform before then. At that stage, it wasn't as sophisticated as this one, <laughs> which looks like a cartwheel. Uh-huh. It was just um, blue rope and branches that we picked around here built into some sort of trellis. So maybe it was. It was very early days. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, of course, I met Roy because of uh, our interest in ospreys, and, and we've been at it ever since, actually. Exactly. Yeah. If you'd known you were going to be back here in 2019. Yeah, yeah. Climbing trees. Climbing trees need to climb a tree. <laughs> no, and it's great to have the kids with us today, isn't it? Yeah, fantastic. And when renovations were needed, the local school was called on to do a bit of hands-on conservation of its own. The children were invited when we rebuilt this nest. And one of my colleagues went up the tree. The reason was the top of the tree was getting very dangerous and we thought it would break when the bird had eggs or young. So what we decided to do, it's a dead pine tree in a moor. And we decided to take off about eight feet and reduce its size and put in an artificial nest. So we did that and we had the children, they had a rope to the tree and Fraser kind of sawed through it and then the kids had to pull it down, (laughs) which was great fun for them. And then we got them to collect all the sticks to build the nest. And... uh, then they were able to see that the birds came back and used the nest and this is a follow-on so the primary school children are here with their mums and dads and uh, the marvelous thing is that the migration data from this bird will give them the opportunity to understand navigation geography history um, how people live in west africa where hopefully these birds will end up and the data that is sent back every day, uh, they can use it in their studies. We're sending up a bag now to put the chicks in. <laughs> so Roy was saying it's a local school's nest, yeah. really. Yes, it is. It's lovely. Were you here for the rebuilding? Yes, I, I was here when they chopped the top off and um, put the metal ring up there. It's fantastic. It's lovely having a sort of the children have such a connection. Have you seen a, a difference that's made for them? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, my sons have wanted to cycle and walk up here all the time with binoculars and, and have a look at, at what the osprey are doing, which is brilliant. You know, all the way up from the village and just up on the paths behind the nest. Do you remember in the summer holidays what yeah. did we get to do? Uh, ring them. Yes, we got we got to watch them being ringed, didn't we? So you've seen a chick already. I always think when you hear the word chick, it's not really what you imagine coming down the tree, is it? They're so big. They are really big, aren't they? Do you remember one of them was quite feisty, wasn't she? Oh, yeah. Yes, and the other one was just content to play dead, and the other one was 
on it. Let's see what they're like today. Wow, big surprise. Wow. There are three. Oh, wow. wow. It's really personal, isn't it? It is. Yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, Nesta's got three. Yes. I had no idea they'd get this close. I didn't. I think it's brilliant. Especially for them to see this, and because you'll maybe never ever see it again. Tim McCrill works with Roy Dennis and is an expert in osprey conservation. Using the journeys of individual birds like Carr and Desha is key to involving people in the story of wildlife. Because of the incredible detail that we can get from the satellite trackers, we can really bring their journey to Africa to life. And it's a great way of engaging young people in nature conservation. And we all know that at the moment that is of fundamental importance if we're to address the real ecological crisis the, the planet's facing. So right the way from Scotland all the way down to West Africa, we've been using the migration of the osprey to engage young people in the natural world. And not just young people. We know that people of all ages love following the ospreys on migration. So it really is a bird that can bring people together as you follow it on migration. I'm quite determined in the morning to go and be with the children in forests when they have their march against climate breakdown because I think it is a serious thing for young people. I gather that they're going to dress up um, as uh, animals that have become or may become extinct. The onslaught that we've caused on nature as well as our impacts on the climate are so serious that we older people have to do more. We have to change things. And I would love the idea that only young people could vote for politicians rather than the old. And then we might get some real changes because we dramatically need them. Okay. Okay. Okay, do you see the wee transmitter on this, everyone? It's going to oh, go back. Yeah. I'll pop this one back into Ness now. And it's live now. And that transmitter told us when the male chick car left on migration on September the 3rd, heading south for a river in the borders. Any one of us can look at the maps online, but I asked Tim, who works with Roy, to interpret what Carr was doing on his journey. Looking at the satellite data, it's quite possible that he caught his first fish there because he lingered by the river for 48 hours. And of course, that would be his first ever fish because while he was at the nest, he would have been reliant on his father for food. But as soon as he headed south, that's it. He's got to look after himself. Uh, and then he carried on after presumably a good feed. Yes, that's right. After a couple of days in the Scottish borders, Carr continued south and he flew through the Yorkshire Dales and roosted in Yorkshire before their next day making a fantastic flight of 550 kilometres and that took him through the Midlands down towards Dorset. He flew past Poole Harbour where of course we released 11 young ospreys earlier this summer and across the English Channel and he reached Guernsey and roosted for the night on Guernsey. Then next day he continued south again. He flew across to the Brittany Peninsula and then down to the Atlantic coast of France. Now many ospreys as they head south will follow the French coast but Carr basically continued on the same southwesterly trajectory and that took him across the Bay of Biscay to northern Spain. And his sister was slower to leave the nest wasn't she? 
Yes, Daisha waited three days to follow her brother, but when she did leave the nest site, she had tailwinds to help her, and that meant she made really fast progress. So on the first night, she flew across Morecambe Bay after dark and then roosted in Cheshire, and the next day, continued south at an equally impressive rate and she flew just like her brother. She also passed over Guernsey and in fact at that point she overtook Carr because rather than roosting on Guernsey as he did she continued south onto the Brittany Peninsula. And did Carr do what he was supposed to do once he made it across the Bay of Biscay? Once in Spain, Carr used a route that's favoured by many ospreys as they head south. He was flying over the centre of the country and the great thing with Spain for the migratory Ospreys is that they're able to utilise thermal updrafts to aid their migration. So in the centre of Spain you get really strong thermals, particularly in autumn when there's good weather. And that means it's not uncommon for the migratory ospreys, even these juveniles, to get up to heights of perhaps two or 3,000 metres above sea level. They'll, th- they'll circle up on a thermal and then glide forwards. And that, of course, reduces the amount of energy they're expending as they go south. And because the conditions were so good, it took Carr just three days to get through Spain. And then he crossed the Strait of Gibraltar to Morocco. So just 11 days after leaving Carr Bridge, he was already in Africa. He'd flown two and a half thousand kilometres. He flew for the whole of the next day, another 400 kilometres and passed to the east of Marrakesh. And at that point, he would see looming large on the horizon, the Atlas Mountains. And that night roosted high up at about, what, over a thousand metres in the foothills of the of the Atlas. And the next morning when he woke up, he had looked down to a large reservoir that was 12 kilometres to the west. And he flew down to the reservoir. And really interestingly, the data that we've received showed that has shown that for the past week, Carr has remained at that reservoir. So it's going to be fascinating to see how long he stays there. And then it's almost as if his sister wanted to distinguish herself from him somehow. Yes, once in Brittany, Daisha actually followed the coast south. And that meant that she passed over Bordeaux and then eventually south towards the Pyrenees. We think that she caught her first fish in the River Ardor, which is just to the north of the Pyrenees. And then she flew through the high mountains. We could really see how she kind of picked her way through the mountains. She went through a mountain pass without having to fly over the highest peaks. Having crossed the Pyrenees, Dacia then headed south through Spain. But unlike her brother, she followed a much more easterly route. And she flew from the Mercia coast across to Algeria, a flight of about 210 kilometres across the sea. It took four and a quarter hours, but she was flying very strongly, so obviously still in really good condition. Having flown to Algeria, it meant that Dacia now faced a much longer crossing of the Sahara Desert if she was going to get to West Africa. She also needed to change her track much more to the southwest in order to reach the really fish-rich river deltas of places like Senegal. And we're really pleased to say that it looks like she's done that. So there's data from her Sahara crossing is just coming through and it looks like she's reached the south of Mauritania. So she has changed to that southwesterly course and she's making good progress across the desert, which is really, really encouraging.
I assume the Sahara is the biggest challenge that's going to face the birds leaving Scotland. Of course, the big thing is that there's no fish. So they've got to go for four, maybe five days without food. So the ospreys have developed various means of of trying to save energy as they fly across the desert. And one of the things they do is they tend to restrict their flight to periods when there are thermal updrafts, which enable them to to reduce the amount of energy they're they're using as they migrate. So what they'll do is they'll wait till perhaps 10 o'clock in the morning, just as the temperatures start to rise, and then they'll circle up on the first thermals of the day and they can get up some incredible altitudes over the desert, sometimes over 2,000 metres, maybe even 3,000 metres, and they'll reach the top of the thermal, then open their wings and glide onwards. And basically, that's how they migrate over the course of a day. But things can go wrong, and one of the big issues for the juveniles is if there are strong crosswinds. The other real issue with the desert is where to roost at night. Some of the birds we followed have sadly died in the middle of the Sahara, perhaps in the middle of Algeria or Mali. But others show incredible resilience as they go south and eventually they make it to Senegal. And some of them will then remain in in those parts of Africa for perhaps several weeks before going further south. Others continue south, but from that point onwards, then there are the opportunities to feed again. I get such a thrill to think that there are people in Africa who are waiting for those birds to arrive in September and October and who are just as excited to see them arrive at that time of year as we are when they return to the UK in the spring. I'm Junkun Jadama from the Gambia, West Africa. I guide tourists in my country, taking them to a different area within Gambia and Senegal for bird washing. But education is needed in Africa, just as it is here, if the birds are to thrive. Even having a ring on their leg or carrying a satellite tag can make them a target. But I also did a project with, uh, uh, with Osprey volunteers from the UK, uh, like Roy Dennis Osprey Foundation. As I'm talking now, we are expecting the Ospreys before mid mid October. We hope to see the two young ospreys that has been satellite tracked from Scotland. And then as you can hear this environment is very noisy, different from the environment ospreys will come from to come to Africa. Because Africa is different. People uh, think uh, birds with rings could be a witchcraft. So we try to show them pictures that we took with the ospreys. So sometimes it's very dangerous for them at an environment that they don't know. And then people don't know the ospreys. And it's very difficult, especially the satellite track ones, because when they see an antenna or an aerial behind the osprey, they might think it's something or it's carrying something. So they can shoot them. But then for us teaching the school kids from grassroots, that will help other people, uh, that will help them to know and to realize these birds migrate and the rings on their uh, feet are the ring from Europe. So it helps a lot. And with Ospreys, they link the Gambia to the wall. And you can follow the progress of Car and Desha as they make their way further south via maps on the Foundation's website, www.roydennis.org.
I love talking to you because you just stop mid-sentence if you see something interesting. I mean, there was an binoculars. interesting goose here, but it, it <laughs> Of all the many thousands, yeah, which was the not, interesting it's goose. Not, it's not an interesting <laughs> goose, but anyway. Well, I thought it might have been a Brent goose. Uh. Okay. Um, these great journeys are continuing all the time, and they're nearly leapfrogging each other. So one lot leaves for the south, and the other lot comes from the north. And then in the spring, the ospreys return here in the first days of April. And when they come back, the geese are then building up their strength, ready for their big migration to Iceland and Greenland. And for about a month, they're together again. And then the geese all go in late April, early May. And the bay then is for the ospreys and the shell duck and the curlews and the like. I come down here at this time because I want to see those last birds before they go away. You know, I saw them arrive, I've checked the nests in this area and uh, we keep a record of how many pairs and how many young were reared. And if I come in three days time, the chances are they will have gone. And that will be the end of the osprey season for 2019. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love it if you shared it with somebody else, just to get the word out about the work of the Roy Dennis Wildlife Foundation. And the music, Realness by Kai Engel, is downloadable from the Free Music Archive.